Hello, my friends. It's Ryan from the Prolific Creator Podcast. Now, many of you have asked, hey, Ryan, how do I support the show? Well, I finally listened. Starting today, you can subscribe to the Prolific Creator Plus on ACAST Plus for $3 a month. That's less than a cup of coffee. No apps to download and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Get access to the entire archive of Prolific Creator Awesomeness. Over 160 episodes going back to 2017. Yes, that's right, my friends. A plethora of information and inspiration, tips, tricks, and interviews to get your art and work into the world. Remember those ads? Say bye, bye, bye. Wait, there's more. For $5 a month, you can get access to the full prolific creator experience. This includes the full archives, early access to episodes, listener Q&A, book and movie reviews, and interviews not for the public, and perhaps any other awesomeness I might do on the microphone. Sounds awesome, right? Yeah, it does, Ryan. If you want to listen for free, you'll notice the last 50 episodes or so will always be available wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember, by subscribing today, you don't have to download any new apps, and you can simply keep listening on the podcast platform you prefer. Cool. Okay. Cool. Thanks for your love and support in advance. Simply click on the link in the show notes or on my website, and it'll take you where you need to go. Now on to the show. Hey, this is Ryan from The Prolific Creator, where we talk about life and art and see what sticks. So glad that you're here. And today, my friends, I have a fantastic guest. Dan Werb is on the show. And Dan wrote a book called Invisible Siege. And this book is all about the pandemic and viruses and how we can understand it. He's a Canadian and has some very good insights. Um, I said Canadian like I, a negative. It's not a negative. He just happens to be Canadian, um, and it, but actually has some really good insights as he's kind of peeked into our over our borders and seen how the U.S. has handled the pandemic versus Canada and other parts of the world. And you're really going to love our conversation. It goes here and there. And um, I am by no means um, an expert in pandemics or viruses, um, uh, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express. Uh, that's an old callback to the old commercial. It doesn't matter, people. I don't know why you even listen to the show, um, but. We have a great conversation. I think it's very enlightening of just how we understand information and, and how we understand the future of even pandemics because we've all been uh, affected by this. And, uh, and it's not anything new. There's been viruses that have been around the world for uh, forever. And, uh, and so uh, really fun conversation. We even get into just kind of Dan's way of wanting to write this book that's kind of uh, call it geeky, call it scientific, call it you know a book with data, but also to, to tell stories and to make it narrative, make it interesting because I think that's important. As we think about getting important information out into the world, um, it's not just about facts. You know, if it's just facts and, you know, if we give people the facts, shouldn't they just use the facts and go do good with it? But obviously we know in our world that's not the case, at least in America that's not the case. Um, but what do stories do? How do stories kind of work up, work on us in a different way to get us the information and get us to think about uh, things of the world and things of our lives, uh, create even empathy in us? So you are going to love my time with Dan Werb. And my friends, uh, go check out the website, Ryan J. Pelton. Uh, check out those free resources on the website there. Um, love for you to uh, just help you in your creative work, whatever you're working on, kind of get take those next steps. Um, also get signed up on that newsletter. I do a Hints of Hope uh, newsletter. 
and I share some interesting links and books I'm reading and just other kind of interesting creative things uh, that where I find little hints of hope uh, for us where, in different shapes and sizes. So check that out. Stay updated on the latest podcasts, all that good stuff, and hopefully that will serve you well. No further ado, my friends. Let's go talk to Dan Werb. Well, welcome, everybody. I am so uh, thankful today to have Dan Werb on the show. And Dan has a new uh, book out called Invisible Siege, and he is an epidemiologist and a former mu- musician. So as an intro, I have to hear more about, I mean, epidemiology is pretty interesting. Uh, but yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of your past life. Well, I got to say they're they're pretty linked because I got into epidemiology kind of by accident. I, um, I had done some work around sort of drug policy, looking at the war on drugs for this NGO. Um, kind of out of the blue. And then out of that, I was just looking for a summer job. And I got this summer job at an HIV research center, just writing materials for them. And, you know, it was a good job, but I was a touring musician. I was making no money uh, as a musician at the time. And uh, summer job ended and they were like, hey, do you want to stay on? And I was like, well, I'd love to, but I'm I'm going to be touring. And they were like, well, you can just write about HIV and drug policy during the day in the tour van, right? I was like, okay, this actually sounds amazing. So I kind of bankrolled the early years when, you know, you're on the road spending all your money on gas and um, playing shows by playing shows at night, waking up, being in our tour van, writing basically like peer-reviewed scientific papers during the day. And then, you know, I just kept on doing that and balanced it for a really, really long time. Uh, and then just got more and more into the epidemiology. Um, you know, it's a it's a funny kind of it's a funny world when you get into it. There's sort of like this this epidemic history of the world that you can you can map when when you start looking into it. And you know, I, initially I, I I realized like the big revelation for me was like looking at HIV epidemics that resulted out of kind of the war on drugs and. Russian drug policy. And it's like, oh man, there's this whole like geopolitical story of the 20th century that you can tell just through where epidemics emerged. Uh, and that's how I got into it. Well, I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting as we talk to a lot of different people with different backgrounds and jobs and vocations and callings, there's always this kind of interesting threads, you know, it's never just, I started here and then I just said, Oh, I'll go over here, but it, it all, how it all kind of works together. And uh, well, Hey, I really look forward to um, just digging in a little bit, um, especially into your book, invisible siege, where you're uh, going after the understanding of the pandemic and viruses and, and all that. And and I think this would be really helpful. I think for a lot of our, our folks too, just listening, because I think there's just a lot of different information of what it is and what we're experiencing. And obviously, you know, most of the world has never experienced this before. Um, but let me, let's talk a little bit about kind of the, the genesis or the desire to write the book. Um, I know you had, you've written some other, other things you've been involved in a lot of things. Um, but, but tell us uh, just specifically about this book. Um, you know, what was kind of the, the aha, I need to do this or something compelling me to do this. Talk, talk us through that. Sure. I mean, I think it's pretty linked to what you were just describing in terms of 
information flowing and how to make sense of it. So, you know, this book, the Genesis came early on in the pandemic when, you know, nobody has experienced something like this before in our generation. Right. Um, and just trying to make sense of it. And yeah, I'm an epidemiologist, but it's one thing to be trained, go to school, learn about concepts and then have it blow up in the, the entire world. Right. Um, so I was as kind of stricken and anxious as, as anybody um, in, especially in the early days when you're trying to understand like, what is this thing? How did it, like, what is happening? So, you know, early on, I went back to this concept that I learned very, you know, in my, in my kind of doctoral training, which is the epidemic triangle, super simple concept. Basically what it says is you want to understand how an epidemic arose you look at the relationship between the pathogen, the host, like where the pathogen, like what organism the pathogen infects, and the environment within which those two uh, things intersect. So the pathogen and the host. And basically, you can track the beginning of an epidemic to a shift in the relationship between two or more of those, the, the pathogen, the host, and the environment. So that's helpful, right? Because that, then you have a kind of starting point that you can go back to and you can start tracking things back, which is what epidemiologists love to do. They're kind of like detectives, but for meta events rather than a single crime. Um, and it can also give you a sense of how crazy things will get in the future, even, even if it's a broad sense. So, you know, when I, when I, when I went back to that concept, I found it really helpful. I wrote an op-ed, it got published in the New York Times, um, and then from there, I was like, you know, obviously there's some, there's some appetite for knowledge here. Uh, and, and I'm not talking about like the daily case count numbers or, or, you know, where, what sub variant has now emerged. I'm talking more about like knowledge about how to contextualize all that information. I'll also say, <laughs> yeah, like back to this kind of scientific information thing, scientists are not historically great at communicating information. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm somebody who got into epidemiology from journalism, from writing. Like I, my background is in uh, like literature and philosophy. It was only much, much later in life that I went back and got my training in epidemiology. So I have this, and I don't really know much, or I didn't know much about virology. I knew nothing about coronaviruses going into this book. And, you know, for, for me, that was a strength, right? Because I had kind of like the capacity to talk to scientists, to read these peer-reviewed manuscripts that are like totally opaque and um, pretty impossible to interpret if you don't have the training. But then I could take that and translate that into something understandable for people and hopefully like readable. So so that's, that's where the genesis of the book was um, or, or where it came from. And then you know, just talking to people, right? Like I, I talked to dozens and dozens and dozens of scientists. Um, and just, uh, you know, I think one of the things that people forget is that science isn't this monolithic system. It's a bunch of people who don't know what's going to happen next. That's why they're running experiments. Like mm -hmm. that's the whole thing. It's a, it's a system of knowledge it's a flawed system of knowledge, like every system of knowledge, but it is self-correcting and it self-corrects because people don't know, you know, people have their doubts and they explore that. And so it, uh, to me, 
that's a better way of communicating what we know, because I think so much of what we've seen around vaccine hesitancy and um, suspicion about government motivations comes from the idea that people think, oh, like science is just this black box that, you know, is telling me the answers, but won't explain how it got there. Um, so, you know, it was really important for me to write this book and, and to show, you know, everything is motivated by people's personal journeys, right? Like people are people and they're doing amazing work. That's what science is. No, I appreciate that. And I, a lot of the uh, reviews I've read and a few snippets of the book, one of the, the, the qualities of the book, I think, is just you're very clear on explaining things. And there's a, there's a narrative to it. Um, and I like what you were saying earlier about just these dry kind of you know journals and things that people would love to read, but they're just so, so, you know, they're so, I don't know, inside baseball, if you will totally. use, that, use that analogy. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like, you know, scientists just talking to other scientists, forgetting about the audience. Right. And so I, I really appreciate your angle on this because again, do we need another book just to explain, you know, give a bunch of information that you can get off the internet or to actually tell a story. And I, I really appreciate that. Um, and I appreciate your way of just kind of, you know, in a very gracious way saying, Hey, these are, are people trying to figure things out. There's a story behind it. There's probably even a story behind how they even got into their work and their desires to help and, uh, and get good information out there. But like you said, the communication isn't always there. So we need help in that. Um, well, yeah. And like, you know, you, so I, I, one of the things that happened, which, which was amazing for scientists is that PubMed, which is this U S government run, um, compendium of all peer reviewed studies, like scientific peer reviewed studies made it freely accessible for anyone to access anything any papers related to coronavirus during the pandemic. If, if you, before that you needed to be affiliated with a university that had access, but they just opened the floodgates, right? Which is amazing. But then, like you say, the average person can't read this shit. Like it is truly meaningless. And, and for me, like I found that because I'm an epidemiologist, but I'm trained in social epidemiology, which is basically trying to understand how people's behaviors and, and the kind of structures in our society influence their risk of getting infected with a, with a disease um, or with a virus or pathogen. But this was like, you know, you read these papers and they're hard virology, like the structural mechanics of how a virus intersects with, you know, with like the enzymes that it uses to replicate itself. So like, it was a, it was a learning curve for me. And so Again, you know, you come to the point or you get to the point where it's like, okay, well, there's more information out there, but how do we make sense of it? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the, be- the best way to, or mo- the best way to make sense of that kind of thing is through storytelling and, mm-hmm. and through demonstrating that all this knowledge comes from people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there's a, you know, just a lot of people that listen to this podcast, you know, creative people telling stories in different formats and mediums is, how do we tell these stories in different ways? How do we look at different angles of, of doing it? Because I think it, it's like the boring, you know, professor that just has great information, but he's so boring or she's so boring that you just you tune out after a while. And, and I think that's part of the problem is like, there is so much good information, but the way it's packaged, the way it's told, the way it's, uh, you know, 
explained is just over the heads of most people or just it's not interesting and you know we'll move on so then we go to facebook and go well i get my my the authority from my weird blogger friend who has all the answers in the universe right, right? um but well, well that, and, and i'll say on that like this is where it starts getting into dangerous territory mm-hmm. so you know if science like in the context of a pandemic if the scientific information isn't appropriately or like effectively communicated, then people go elsewhere. So to your point, in the week after um, Trump said that hydroxychloroquine was a game changer, which we have now, as of like two weeks ago, of course, finally definitively said, this is bullshit, it doesn't work. Even then there was no information and like no real data that it worked. But there was like this massive spike in Facebook posts about hydroxychloroquine, right? So then you get this ripple effect where this kind of total scientific misinformation is being spread. It's not, you know, like there are people who are doing it, I guess, consciously or on purpose, but I think people are moving into those, like seeking that that information because the the scientific information isn't communicated properly. Right. So like, that's not just on people, right? Like that's on systems of trying mm-hmm. to communicate. Um, so, and, and that's a really hard thing to do. Right. right. And I think we're, you know, that that's a good point because I think we're moving into a, a day, obviously social media is, you know, people don't realize like social media is actually a very new thing. Uh, we act as if it's been here forever and it's still, you know, evolving uh, for good or ill, <laughs> but you know, it's in, and you know, it started off with just, here's my puppy and here's my family. And now it's, you know, let me tell you my opinions on everything. Um, <laughs> and so uh, there's an evolution there. And I think we get sucked into that, you know, echo chamber, we get sucked into the algorithms, we get sucked in, sucked into information that might not be the best. Um, and we just think it's normal. It's like, oh, well, yeah, hey, this guy said this, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I get notes in my, you know, message box on Facebook of, Hey, watch this video. I'm like, this guy's, you should not listen to this person. This is horrible. <laughs> um, anyway, um, that's here or there. Uh, but I, I'd be interested, um, just as uh, maybe along these same lines, not to get, you know, into the political weeds or anything, but you're actually, um, coming from Canada. And so, yeah. you, you know, have a unique, uh, viewpoint, you know, I'm in, in the States. I know we have people listening all around the world, uh, literally. And, uh, yeah. How, what was kind of your perspective kind of peeking into as the pandemic's beginning and as you're kind of seeing all, all that's going on, I mean, all is all, it could be, you know, politics yeah. could be people freaking out over the pandemic as they should be, you know, what do we do globally? But did you have a unique perspective from, from the, the Canadian side? Yeah, I mean, I so I I'm affiliated with the I'm on faculty at UC San Diego and at the University of Toronto, so I'm kind of I have this dual lens on at least what what scientifically is happening. Um, I can tell you the major difference, especially early on between Canada and the United States, is that in 2002 there was the first SARS coronavirus that spilled over into human beings. Um, so that was kind of an ancestor of SARS two, the virus that causes COVID nineteen. It spread from Guangzhou province in China to Hong Kong and then from Hong Kong all of, all around the world, Australia, Vietnam, uh, South Korea, uh, uh, and Canada. And Canada had one of the worst epidemics outside of China. There were a bunch of people that died. I think uh, almost 50 people died in Toronto, hmm. uh, where I uh, spend most of my time these days. Toronto got totally shut down. Like there was a huge... and and. and Back then, the idea of a shutdown was insane. 
people, I don't know if people remember this, but you had Mike Myers in a Toronto Maple Leafs jersey trying to go on Letterman and be like, don't worry, Toronto's safe, because people were worried, like it's the fourth largest city in North America that it was never going to recover. Hmm. So there was a national trauma that came from SARS. And in the wake of that, all these changes got made in Canada in terms of like, let's set up an early warning system. Let's have medical officers of health who can kind of, you know, employ public health measures, restrictions, all that kind of stuff. So early on when the pandemic hit, I think Canada had this leg up because they had already been traumatized. Hmm. There were zero SARS deaths in the United States. So there wasn't this history. There wasn't this scar tissue um, to, you know, to protect the country, I think, and, and, and sort of have these systems in place and, and, and have some knowledge, I think, among people that, okay, this, this shit can get really real. Um, and, and I think that, you know, you look at the countries that were affected by previous coronaviruses, um, like SARS, and then in 2012, there was another um, pathogenic coronavirus that emerged called Middle East Respiratory Syndrome that is still circulating and kills almost 50% of the people that uh, it infects. Um, and, you know, you look at the countries that were impacted by epidemics or outbreaks of those two coronaviruses early on, they did so much better. So, so much better. Like South Korea, Vietnam, China, Canada, Australia, like all these countries had this trauma, these national traumas from earlier coronaviruses. Um, I think that was really the, the main issue. And then, you know, not to get too political, but like, can you think of a worse communicator of scientific information than Donald Trump? Like people either just instinctively disagreed with him because they found him so loathsome or so even when he was communicating correct information, nobody wanted to believe him Mm -hmm. or people so adored him that anything that he said, they took his gospel. Right. So Mm -hmm. like you, you had this really, really divisive figure um, and that's just, that's not who you want leading the charge. Right. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it couldn't have been the, <laughs> if you were to handpick you know, someone to just even communicate the information, I mean, let alone. Well, and that's it, right? Yeah. Like, like, so the, tr- the book includes a little bit of spicy Trump content, mm-hmm. um, but all from the point of view of scientists who were affected by what he did. Um, mm-hmm. But the point isn't, like the point isn't that like Donald Trump, you know, destroyed America or whatever. Um, it's more that you have somebody who's so divisive in that post and it's basically impossible to get correct information out, right. especially when the information is shifting. Right. Yep. Yeah. So like going back to that point, so the, the early like SARS breakouts, I'm mean, not early, but I mean, the last 20 years, you know, different, different countries, you know, uh, killing, you know, 50 people or, you know, different groups in Asia and other places. I mean, living in the States, we don't get that information very often um, unless you're really, look, really, really looking forward or really in tune with things. Um, so it breaks out. What, what, what did they do in those early kind of small pandemics? If you, I mean, I don't even know if you think you even yeah. call it a pandemic, but in the smaller scale, like what was kind of the, the things they did that, that has really helped? Cause it sounds like in Asia, this happens, you know, quite often. I mean, not on mass scales, but definitely more than it does here. Um, but you know, what, what was kind of the key to kind of, you know, get back to normalcy and actually, you know, ward it off yeah. in some ways. I mean, obviously there's still things going around, but, um, yeah, what did, what did that look like? 
so i mean this is like the the book is set up like in three parts and it starts with sars then there's a part around mers and then it moves into covid-19 and basically you're following the same the stories of okay. these same scientists who have um been tracking these epidemics these emergent coronavirus epidemics and learning each time right i think one of the things that's most important for people to understand is that we have had more spillover events that have caused outbreaks and epidemics and pandemics in the first 20 years of the 21st century than we have across the entirety of the 20th century so the relationship between humans and dangerous viruses is accelerating. So like we're we're at this <laughs> shitty time in history where the way that humanity is interacting with the world around us is making us at greater risk of of pandemics and 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 epidemics. Um so so I think that's useful backdrop. I'll tell you that the book is really really hopeful and optimistic, so I hope people read it and take away like the story that yeah we're in this really d- dangerous i mean not dangerous but we're we're at a time of of great change but we have all these incredible scientific tools to protect us mm-hmm. in terms of the first sars epidemic i mean yeah it it was recent but 20 years ago mapping the genome of a virus took months and months right mm-hmm. like it hadn't been done in real time during a pandemic so what does that mean Okay, so you can't map the genome of a virus. So you can't test for the virus. You have no idea how how far it's spreading. If you don't know what the genome of the virus is, you also can't create a vaccine against it. You can't really create antivirals that are going to be effective against it. Like all of the things that we've taken for granted with COVID-19, like within two months, Chinese scientists... uh, in, in January um, 2020, released the full genome of the coronavirus. Like that, that and, and we just sort of took that for granted. That kickstarted all kinds of vaccine work, antiviral work, like therapeutic work. And, and most importantly, especially in the early, early days, the development of effective PCR tests that could actually track like where this virus was going. None of that was in place early on with SARS. Technology just wasn't there. So there was this Herculean effort to map the genome. And the story of how scientists did that is like really, really incredible. And and it's in the book. It's this small group of scientists that like had to get SARS blood or uh, SARS virus samples from blood from patients in Toronto and like have it shipped. And they were basically competing with the US CDC. I mean, it's, it's really bonkers what they did. Um, but ultimately, you know, the, the difference with SARS, the first SARS virus versus SARS-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, is that humans were able to completely eradicate it from our, like, hu- like our species just by placing public health restrictions. Um, so there were some severe, or maybe severe is not the right word, intense public health restrictions on people especially in Hong Kong uh, and Guangzhou and other places like Toronto, other places where, where the virus um, caused uh, outbreaks. Um, but that was made way easier and more effective because the period during which people who were infected were most infectious lined up perfectly when, when they were most symptomatic. 
So you look like you're sick, like you're hacking up a lung, your, your, your respiratory system is all messed up. You're in hospital and you're kind of isolated. So that in hospital, you know, you're, you're far less likely to transmit the virus. And it was way easier to connect to identify people who had SARS uh, and get them isolated because they were most sick when they're most infectious. SARS-2, that's not the case. Like we now know, and we've known for a while, that asymptomatic infection is really what's driving this thing. So people are more infectious before they start showing severe symptoms. And that is the key difference between the SARS virus that came before in 2002 and the SARS-2 virus that came in 2020. So whereas in 2002, we were able to get rid of this coronavirus out of human, out of the human species just by uh, placing public health restrictions or employing public health restrictions, like we couldn't do that in 2020. And unfortunately, we totally learned the wrong lessons. Like out of 2002, the world was like, all right, well, yeah, coronavirus might spill over, but we'll deal with it. We won't need vaccines. We won't need anything. You know, these are poorly um, adapted uh, viruses that won't cause trouble. Like that was exactly the wrong lesson. Right. 10 years later, another one emerges in MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. Same thing. Oh, it's slow moving. Yeah, it's dangerous to people who get it, but you know, we can stop it without vaccines. So we're like, we're, we're learning the wrong lesson, which is like, oh, these things will pop up, but they won't be you know, too hard to deal with. Whereas the actual lesson was, holy shit, we've now seen two viruses from the same family emerge and kill people in the span of 10 years, which is like nothing in viral time. We've got a trend here and it's only a matter of time before this family of viruses spills over again and is more uh, elegantly adapted to infecting us. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. And I think that's really helpful just to, for people to hear kind of how these things start, how they spread, how they, you know, um, I think we all, <laughs> there's just too many, I think, uh, couch experts, you know, armchair experts, you know, that say, well, obviously it's this. And you're just like, well, obviously none of us have ever been through this. So let's listen to yeah, some smart yeah, people. Exactly. Um, but w- do you think there in your estimation, the things that happened 20 years ago and just how they, you know, handled it, it sounds like what I hear from you is maybe they're, wasn't always handled well in the sense that we're not taking this as serious as we should. Fuck no. Um, I mean, like (laughs) every time that an epidemic emerges, you see governments acting pretty badly. Mm -hmm. And generally the more authoritarian the government, the worse they're going to act. So like China in 2002 was less authoritarian than it is now. Um, And yet, you know, they were at a really delicate time politically where There was this, you know, their premier was basically trying to open up China to the world economically. But then this SARS epidemic happened and they couldn't like move forward on that. There was a lot of internal political um, uh, uh, opposition to kind of a more open China economically. Like you had Maoists who were basically protesting in the street who were like, let's keep China closed. So, you know, there's that political backdrop that really complicates the way that governments can can communicate information, not only to their own citizens, but to like globally. Right. And of course, we know these are all these are global issues like this is a collective action problem Mm. in 2012. Saudi Arabia. Right. It was it was the cusp of the Arab Spring. 
you had an old monarch who had been essentially executing people for dissent. And then suddenly they have a coronavirus that's killing half of the people that it affects. Uh, what do you think they're going to do? Right? Like, of course they didn't share information at first. They, they, you know, and this is in the book, like this one um, incredible virologist, this guy, Ian Lipkin, who was the scientific advisor on the movie contagion. He tried to get into the country to track. He, in fact, he was invited into the country to track um, uh, the, the MERS coronavirus epidemic. And so the first thing he said is, well, you know, we know that coronaviruses, their natural reservoir are in bats, a lot of them. So we need to track bats. First thing the Saudi Arabian government said to him was, oh, there aren't any bats in Saudi Arabia. It's like, that's where you're starting from. It's like, no, there are lots and lots of bats in Saudi Arabia. And then, you know, he, so he, so he had to go out and catch bats and basically say like, here are a bunch of bats that I found in Saudi Arabia. Can we now start doing the work of like actually testing uh, their blood and, and trying to find out how these, how this virus spilled over to human beings? I mean, it, it like the level of, of kind of, uh, yeah, just of, of self-protection that governments uh, mm-hmm. engage in. It, it, it's, it's so often the reason why epidemics get out of control. Mm-hmm. And Ian Lipkin, you know, I talked to him a ton of, for this book and, and his story is, is fascinating. And like one of the key, key narratives in the book, like he, his approach to think, handling epidemics is to always consider governments as like a factor driving the epidemic. Right. So like, you know, classic epidemiologists might think about like, you know, zoonotic features, like what is the how is what is the up, uh, makeup of the virus and where are like what biological systems in animals make them more or less prone to harboring these and potentially spilling them over into humans. Like he takes that all into account, but then he's also thinking about, OK, well, what is this government doing that is going to either uh, hamper or or hinder or what's the opposite of hinder facilitate if i can mm-hmm. choose a super boring <laughs> scientific word um like the you know our our ability to to end epidemics and like that that to me is fascinating when when all the politics come into play because they always do right, right. like these are yeah. these are these are driven by viruses or or they're i guess you could say like epidemics are caused by viruses but they're driven by politics yeah, and I think that was one of the most frustrating parts of this whole thing. And I mean, they were still kind of in the middle of it is just the the political people just it becomes this whole other thing. And we're not thinking about the people that are sitting across the table from us or sitting in our communities. And it's it becomes this whole what side are you on and you know what totally. the government should do and all these things. Um, I have kind of a, a philosophical you know angle on this, too, is like I think when you think about a government um this idea of like showing weakness is like a thing that we just can't do, especially in America. It's like, we can't show that we're weak or, or that something's out of control or something we can't control, or um, th- that's just not what we're supposed to do. And I think sometimes when you think of things like this, it's like to admit we even, maybe we didn't handle this well, or maybe we could have done more, or maybe, you know, we need to lock down or whatever it is. Um, just this idea of like, Hey, we need, we need some information. We need some help. We need some, people lock arms with us. It's like, we just don't do that. Like it's, it's just very, it's all about us and our thing. And you know, we don't want to freak people out, but there's sometimes it's healthy just to say, this is beyond all of us. 
and we need to stop being so arrogant. And so, uh, you know, we have the answers and here's what we're going to do and listen to the really smart people that, you know, live and breathe this stuff and say, okay, what do we do next? Um, well, yeah. And like, to your point, you know, earlier on, I was saying science is a self-correcting system. It's, it's a flawed system, but it's self-correcting. Mm-hmm. So if you have a political system that isn't self-correcting, right. how the fuck are you going to communicate scientific information to people that is changing? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so you need to be able to say, Hey, like we had information. It's now out of date. Mm-hmm. You think about the mask thing, right? Mm-hmm. Early on the CDC was saying, Oh, like they didn't believe that masks were necessary. Well, you know what they were. And it turned out that masks were really, really effective at mm-hmm. preventing the spread of virus. Are they idiots? No. Did they get new information? Yes. So like we shouldn't, it's really hard in, in the system that you're describing where you can't sort of admit weakness to also communicate how information changes as like days go by and data is collected. I mean, it's, it's not possible in that system. So, so it makes it really hard. And and in America, which is, is funny. I mean, to put something more specific on it, it's like, you're not allowed to change your mind. I mean, you you can't go, I thought, Oh, this person might be a good candidate and end up being a train wreck. And you go, no, that's not true. Totally. You know, or, or what, like you just said, that's a great example. It's like, we're not allowed to say like, well, Hey, maybe we didn't have the right information or we, we learned more things. And cause I, I remember early on in the pandemic when the whole thing was, you know, spray down your food and wipe every you know tabletop. Yeah. And like, they thought that, you know, this is going to do it. And it's all about the touch and all that. And, and not that that wasn't important, but realizing like, actually, you know, masks are really effective and that's actually what we need to like, you know, double yeah. down on. And, and that's okay. Like that's just part of searching it out, figuring it out. I mean, but we just have this, we don't have a system that allows for that because so much of it's driven by money. So much of it's driven by, I mean, you, you gave great examples, Middle East, China, we can't look you know, weak, we can't have some virus, you know, when we're talking about growing our economies and all this stuff, nobody wants yeah. to deal with us. If we're spreading viruses around the globe. Exactly. Right. And it's like, yeah, money talks, power talks, unfortunately. Um, but, uh, but switching gears here, um, invisible siege, uh, again, I, I really appreciated the, the kind of, um, narrative quality to it. Um, I mean, that's been one of the top feedbacks I've, I've read and heard about the book and giving information that's important, telling people stories, how these things work, trying to use language that's understandable. Um, I wanted to get in just for a little bit here, just kind of the, you know, part of our podcast too, is like the craft side, the creative yeah. side, the, how the, you know, sausage is made to use a, you know, <laughs> a term in America. Uh, but, uh, they they also just so you know they also have sausages in Canada. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's right. There is yeah. sausage in Canada. You're yeah. right. And Germany. And so I places. understand what what you're yeah, saying. Yeah. Right. Um, t- tell me, like, as you were kind of the seed of the idea was coming, and you mentioned earlier, like, hey, I just really want to tell a clear, you know, story about what this is, how it works, and not too jargony, not too, you know, scientific journals are boring. Um, but yeah, where did it start? Like, what was your process? Like, how did you kind of start putting, you know words on the page, data together. What did that look like for you? Yeah. So it was interesting. You know, I was working with an editor early on and, and the idea kind of started as, okay, well, I'm going to tell the, the story of the pandemic. Cut to Italy and on the ground in Hong Kong and then Western Europe and, and New York. And he was like, dude, you were, this is not, <laughs> you're not writing this book. Like, first of all, the, like it would be an impossible book to write. Right. Like for me, 
Um, you can't, and really for anyone, you can't tell as it's happening, the authoritative story of the pandemic. Um, but he was like, look, you know, we talked about this a lot and for him, the most compelling pieces of this, of, and for me too, like the, the most compelling figures of the story were the scientists that had been running this totally, like had been experiencing something entirely different than most of us had in that they had been developing and uh, developing their understanding and their responses to coronaviruses, not just when the pandemic started, but in some cases for like decades earlier. Right. And like I said, you know, motivated by all of these emergent coronavirus epidemics that had happened over the past 20 years. And, and that was such an incredible narrative. And, you know, I don't want to spoil it for, for listeners, but like there's some incredible, incredible prescient, um, like scientists who just understood the threat in like 2013 and spent basically, you know, the better part of a decade preparing humanity for what was to come. And, and that approach is, was complicated by the fact that, okay, you know, it's like you have these scientists, like particularly this guy, Ralph Barrick, who's at the university of North Carolina, who's, you know, the, world's greatest coronavirus researcher um, and who's the protagonist of this book, really. You know, he was like, I know there's going to be another coronavirus epidemic. I know it could get way worse than SARS or MERS. I don't know what it's going to look like. How do I create a weapon that's going to protect humanity from whatever comes next if I don't know what it looks like? And like that key question is sort of the mystery of the book. And and I think it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. In terms of um, of like getting words down on the page. Uh, like, as I said, like at the top, it was kind of, you know, early on, I was, I was trying to translate all this peer reviewed material. So the way it worked, like I, I talked to, I don't know, at least a hundred scientists for this book early on, I would talk to them. And despite having a background in epidemiology myself, you know, I would talk to these virologists and I'd understand maybe 20% of what they were saying. So you're kind of white knuckling it through these interviews, <laughs> just being like, uh-huh, yes, like scrambling, like writing down key terms. Um, and then when I'd read the transcripts back, I'd go back and anytime I found a term that I didn't understand, I'd go into the peer-reviewed scientific literature and I'd read these papers. And and like it was, it was like learning a new language, right? Like I would learn a new language, I would I would learn the language of virology, right? And so the next time I interviewed them. Maybe I understand 30%. And then I'd go back again. And with every successive interview that I had with, with these scientists, I understood a little bit more and I became fluent in this new language. Like it really was like learning, you know, a, a, a new language. And, and then what I sort of found like between reading these, these, you know, virological papers and interviewing these, these virologists and these other scientists and epidemiologists it was like my work was translation. It was like I was taking these, these narratives, these stories of incredible scientific um, uh, discovery under intense scientific pressure and translating them into English. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. for a general audience. And, and that was really, really fun. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting finding 
the stakes of something like buried deep in a super dry scientific peer reviewed study from like 2008, mm-hmm. you know, but you, there were these moments when I was doing this work where like, I would find the answer to a question and it was like everything locked in because I, I finally understood the stakes for these scientists and the stakes for the world and you know, what had been motivating them all along. Cause like, of course I'm asking them about that and like where they came from and who they, what kind of people they were and getting a sense of them. So, you know, that, that's, that's really how it, how it worked. Um, you know, it was, it was taking that. And then of course, like setting the scene, right. So, you know, imbuing the book with a sense of place, which um, I, I thought was, I mean, I worked really, really hard on, because as you can imagine, I did, like I wasn't traveling while I was writing this book because everything was locked down. I couldn't go to Hong Kong or I couldn't go to North Carolina or New York or Saudi Arabia or, you know, wherever I needed to be, Seattle. Um, so I was, I, so much of like the really, really hard um, work that I put into this book was, was, was about kind of evoking place. So you know, the book opens with this distri- description of this, um, this ICU doctor in Seattle, this guy, Nick Mark. And, you know, I felt like it was super important for us to understand what it felt like for an ICU doc to suddenly be in a hospital that was completely re like, like completely transformed by the pandemic it looked nothing like the place that he went to work before this, uh, this pandemic started. And, and it was ghostly and haunting and scary. And, you know, like just a a place where it, it wasn't like chaos, but it was like entirely new and disturbing and scary for him. Like for the first time in his life, he was like, you know, I'm now suddenly scared of intubating my patients, right? So that's like when you put a a tube down their throat to help them breathe. Mm -hmm. Before he would just do it, right? Like he'd have his protections, but he would do it. And it was like, okay, well, I want to minimize the risk of a patient. Suddenly he's scared for his own life doing that work. So it's like this complete reversal. And it was, you know, important for me to, to capture like the pathos and, and, and where all of this was, playing out like you know you got this place where suddenly everyone's dressed in this insane ppe with like you know these um positive pressure hoods on and they're wearing these big gowns like it's all very ethereal and and haunting um so that was i thought you know from my perspective the the parts that were that I felt like were, were what going to, were what was going to separate this book from just like, Oh yeah, here's a bunch of um, scientific uh, uh, information. I like that. That I, I think there's uh, yeah, just that, that human side, the, the, the person, I like the, the stories of, you know, people actually that are experiencing it. My wife's actually a nurse and she's kind of mm. you know been through this and, how things shifted and like the fear that came through and, and, you know, and, and just people kind of 
just doing stuff on the fly. I mean, it was like every week there's a new policy. There's a new, you know, we don't know what to do. My wife actually works with bone marrow transplant patients. So they have like no immunity. And it's like, if they get COVID they're like done for. Yeah. And so just, I mean, just all of that, the, the fear of that and protecting patients and um, yeah, yeah, that, I think, yeah, that's something that I, I, I hope and pray that through your book that comes out of it too. It's not just information, but it's people and stories and how well, it and yeah, like to, communities. And to your point, I mean, I thought Nick was a really, really important character to have in the book, like this ICU doc working through the pandemic because he was the recipient of so much of the scientific discovery that is described in other narratives in the book. Right. So you could see how like on the back end, there's these scientists working on, cures and vaccines and, you know, ways to, to reduce the risk of COVID. And then he's kind of receiving those on the front lines and seeing how that changes his experience um, is, is one of the, the things that the book goes back to, right. To, to see how it evolves. That's good. I think that's a great, actually creative lesson too. Like thinking through like, what's the hook of the book? Like what's the thread I want to kind of keep central to help bring some humanity to it. I, I like that uh, you thinking through that because yeah, you could just tell a bunch of, you know, disconnected stories or a bunch of, you know, data and, you know, say, here it is. And, you know, bore people out of their minds, or you can kind of, yeah, bring this character through. <laughs> that's a real person, you know, dealing with these things. Uh, in I mean, real, like real time. Yeah. Like I, it was super important for me to tell a narrative, right? Like I want to write narrative nonfiction. I'm not interested in, in writing like a, kind of just here's what's happening. Right. Um, you know, point, point by point. I want, I want to know what's happening with people and, and follow people and tell stories. Um, and so that's what I was doing with this book. Um, and, you know, to that point, like I don't actually read a ton of nonfiction. I read some, but I mostly read novels. And, mm-hmm. and so like, that's, that's how I was structuring the book was more about, understanding you know like drawing on the the novels that i've like uh read and and kind of structuring it more in that style than than in like your classic nonfiction. but mm-hmm. yeah i really appreciate the way you brought in harry potter uh that was really really good <laughs> i could tell your influences there um oh man you don't know like the 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 licenses I had to like the fees were just <laughs> right bonkers but i i think it was worth it yeah yeah it was uh well um so tell me just as we kind of get towards the the end of the interview, uh, you know, just as you've gotten some feedback from readers and reviewers and um, there's kind of these two levels there, there's one level of here's what I hope, you know, would happen as people read this book. Obviously we can never control that fully. Um, but what's been, what's been some just positive uh, encouraging makes me happy kind of feedback that you were saying, you know, that actually was kind of what I was hoping would, would come about. And here's what some readers have said, or some people that have reviewed it, looked at it. Um, any, anything that just kind of jumps out at you, a, a story you want to tell about just, yeah, I'm glad I wrote this book. Yeah. You know, there's, there's two things like, so Richard Preston, the uh, author of the hot zone, um, which is like this classic sort of epidemic story about Ebola. He read the book and, and, uh, I, I can't remember the exact word. I mean, it's on the book. So if you buy it, you can, or look online, you can see the blur, but it's something like, passionately he was like he was like it's well written but it's also passionately accurate or something like that i i like that right like i was going for something where and you can't tell reading this but every single fact in the book comes from 
like a peer reviewed scientific source. Right. None of that, like the, there aren't like numbers all over the pages or footnotes or anything. I didn't want any footnotes um, except for one, which is kind of a joke in the book. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I wanted it to be accurate because I thought like the stakes were so, so, so high. Mm-hmm. Like you're talking about life and death here. Right. So I just wanted it to be as accurate as possible. And then I think more than that, the feedback that I've gotten is that people have been like, wow, this reads like a thriller. This, mm-hmm. this is uh, like page turning and, you know, reads like a novel, doesn't read like nonfiction. Like, and, and that's, that's really what I was going for. You know, I was, I was going for something that, um, that would grip people and, and, and sort of bring people into a world. Right. And, and I, and I, I tried to do that. And I think, you know, I, I hope that I succeeded. Some people seem to respond to it. Right. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a, you know, um, just as the last, I don't know, four or five years and in, including the pandemic, uh, there's just a, I think we need to come back to the holy and sacred piece of words and language and stories and how that's important. Um, and how we can be so flippant with that and how we, we tell these stories and, and different ways of doing it. Cause there's so much important things in the world that we just think like, well, if I just give them the data, people will just consume it and they'll be, you know, we think about how much information we have, but obviously it's not making us really wiser or more empathetic or yeah. you know, just to have information, to have information isn't, you know, my kids can go right now and go, go I mean, it's amazing how they do book reports now, or they do you know, uh, research reports, it's like Wikipedia and other websites. And I mean, they just, I didn't have that. I had encyclopedias. Like, I mean, it was just a a different day. Right. But it doesn't mean that they're more wise or they're more empathetic or, you know, we pray they will be. Um, but there's a difference. Right. And I think we do need to kind of come back to, uh, tell the, telling these stories of real people in real situations and bringing some humanity back to the work that's being done, because that's what you want people to hear. It's not just scientists, you know, chopping up data and doing experiments, but it's their story behind it and why they do it and what they're driven by and what they're trying to accomplish and how they're trying to help people and serve people in the, in the globe and around the globe. Is really I, I mean, yeah. And I, I, like, I totally agree with what you're saying. And I think, you know, what people don't understand is that scientists are flawed human beings mm-hmm. and like just going full circle here, like, if you don't, if you can't connect with someone, then it's really hard to kind of take what they're saying at face value and take their work at face value. So like, again, you know, there's the, I'm not going to be grandiose here, right? Like this is a book it's in a, it's in the market. I wanted it to be readable. I want it to be a good book that like has strong narrative. Right. So there's that, but there is this other level where I think more broadly, what you're talking about is like, we need to be able to connect to people and understand that like, science is done by scientists. Scientists are individual people. They're honestly, they're not necessarily smarter than anyone else. They're just really, really fucking good at doing like one thing, which is awesome. Um, And, and, you know, like they would be the, a lot of them would be the first to admit some of them would never admit it, but some (laughs) would be the first to admit like they're working like everyone through a kind of veil of ignorance and, and trying to move through it. Right. Like we all are. And, and I think that's like, that's where the stakes are. And that's when we can start saying, Oh, right. Like we're all in this together. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's a great, great word to end. I think there's just that thread of grace towards people that man, like we're all trying to figure stuff out. We need to be a little more, you know, kind and patient and gracious with people because it's, 
you know, that, that that's what's driven me crazy through all of this is just yeah. everybody so you know angry at each other and and especially at a time when we need to really come together. Um, well, Dan, it has been a, a absolute joy uh, hearing your story, your background, uh, the book Invisible Siege. Everybody, go get it. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, I get a little royalty from that, so please buy the book. No, I don't. Uh, but Dan would love for you to buy the book to hear the story of of. The, the pandemic and the coronavirus and understanding and the stories of the people behind it. Um, it's obviously a labor of love, a lot of time, a lot of interviews. Uh, so, yeah. so uh, go, go check it out. Um, and Dan also like, what are you working on now and where can people find you and find your work? Yeah. Um, I am working on some uh, just developing some, some features. That's what I want to work on and kind of expanding the, the scope of, of scientific stories that I'm telling. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a website called danwerb.com and I have a newsletter there. People can send, just go to danwerb.com slash subscribe. Um, and I send out occasional newsletters. Older newsletters are, are on the site right now, but yeah, hoping to get out there I, and just, um, yeah, do some, I think like, you know, when a book is done, you kind of want to find the next story. So mm-hmm. trying to write shorter pieces and, and see where that takes me. Well, we appreciate you, Dan. Thanks for what you do and uh, keep doing it and uh, all the best. Yeah. Thanks, Ryan. You bet. Appreciate it. Well, there you have it, my friends, Dan Werb, go check out his book, Invisible Siege. Uh, go tell your friends. Uh, really enjoy talking with him. And, uh, and one of the things that I, I, I really took from this interview was the power of story and the power of narrative. Uh, that Dan could have written this book in very, in, in many different ways, and yet he chose to focus on uh, real people doing real things and telling their stories. And and I think there's there's something about that. There's something uh, when we think about being storytellers, how, whatever medium we're using, we're, we're telling these stories and how these stories kind of backdoor truth into our lives. And uh, and so I really appreciate just Dan's perspective and the way he thinks about creativity and the work that he's doing. So go check out Dan Werb. Uh, all his information will be in the show notes. And like I said before, go check out the website, ryanjpelton.com. You can get all your free resources there. You can get on the newsletter. And also it really helps us when you leave ratings or reviews um, on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. It really helps us get the show out into the world. So if you could do that for me, that'd be just a really, even if you hate the show, give me one star. It's fine. Just, just tell somebody, leave a rating, leave a review, whatever, whatever you got to do. Um, but uh, leave that review and that helps us get the show out in the world. So I really appreciate, appreciate you. Uh, thanks for listening once again. It's so great to be able to do this and, uh, and serve our creative uh, community. And before I go, I do have one important thing to say, though, is go make some great art with your life. And I'll talk to you real soon.